When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Today, we are nerding out about an adaptation, a comic, a series of characters, one of the most revered pop culture IPs out there that also a bunch of people don't know about. Weirdly, it's it's a weird place in pop culture that Watchmen occupies, but it made for a fascinating season of television. Um inspired Rebecca to go read the original run, inspired us to think a lot about it. So that's what we're going to do today. We're going to break down, talk about what we liked, what made it so interesting, what intrigued us, maybe even a little what annoyed us, if there are things like that, about HBO's nine episode, and I guess we'll get into this, what to call this. I think the appropriate word is sequel to the Watchmen comic, of which there was a movie adaptation, though this series picks up the comic rather than the movie, which made one notable change, which maybe we'll talk about here in a minute. But a really, it turns out to be a sequel. And we both were really impressed by the pilot when we talked about the previews in the fall. No, oh, shut up, Siri. Um, I just, my phone just decided to start talking. We talked about a dystopian future. Um, and we decided we'd want to talk about the whole series. And Rebecca agreed to do this before she was done because she was enough on the hook and I guess as we before we get into general impressions, was it worth it in the end? We haven't really talked about the oh, whole series together, yes. so give me let me make sure we should be doing this episode. I guess yeah, it was it was so worth it. Um, okay. As you were stating, we talked about the first episode when we did our gathering of uh, Watchmen, Emily Dickinson, and the first episode of His Dark Materials back in the fall, and I realized after the first episode, like. I need to read the source material. So I did that over the holiday break. Um, Took me longer than I expected. There was so Mm. much in the book um, that I wanted to go slowly. I was doing like an issue a day or on some days an issue in the morning and an issue in the evenings. And I was glad that I had time to like sit with it and savor it and try to notice as many things as possible um, and then get back into the show. I kind of regret not rewatching the pilot, honestly, after reading the book. Um, But I think that there was enough that I could sort of, you know, work backwards and notice the things from the pilot or, or, or at least like, project backwards onto it, the stuff I picked up from the book. I'm really, really glad that I took the foundation of the text into watching the show with me. And as an entertainment experience, as a TV show, it was great. Um, I think would have been a great standalone experience. Bob has never read the book and watched the whole show with me and, you know, spent some time being confused, but also had good questions and was really into the story and on the hook as well and found that whatever details I offered from the book, like added color, but weren't necessary, which I think is a good testament to this show being well done um, by itself. But yes, the long story short is it was totally worth it. And I find myself, we finished it two nights ago. I've been thinking about it like Mm. constantly when I drift off, you know, like in daydream land, and a lot of the time right now I'm going to thinking about something from Watchmen and I kind of want to rewatch the whole thing, which doesn't happen very often. So yeah, I was into it. I probably will 
rewatch the whole thing at some point too. I was thinking about doing it in anticipation of this show, but I just ran out of time, nine hours of of looking at it. Maybe we'll do a rewatching the Watchmen episode <laughs> in uh, in two years. We're going to get into more general impressions and then go through what we thought makes it good, what we thought the show was about, character talk, specific moments. Uh, but first, let's take a s- sponsor break. Oh. Today's episode is brought to you by Song of the Silks Realms by Judy Eyelin. Shi Wei is a talented young musician who was orphaned at a young age. Her sole family is a kindly uncle, but then her uncle is killed, and she is, of course, devastated. With no family and no patron, Shi Wei is facing the possibility of a lifetime of servitude playing the chin. Then one night, she is unexpectedly called to perform for the enigmatic Duke Meng. He surprises Shi Wei further with an irresistible offer. Serve as a musician in residence at his manor for one year, and he'll set her free of her indenture. But the Duke's motives become increased increasingly more sus when he and Shue barely survive an attack by a nightmarish monster. It's like, what, <laughs> what's going on here? So this book is a sweeping epic romanticy that follows a talented young musician who is swept away to the celestial realm by an enigmatic young Duke. And who doesn't want to be swept away to the celestial realm by an enigmatic young Duke? She's living all our dreams, honestly. Make sure to check out the new book. And thanks again to Song of the Six Realms by Judy Eileen for sponsoring this episode. This episode is sponsored by The One That Got Away With Murder by Trish Lundy. Robbie and Trevor Cressmont have enough wealth to ensure they'll never be found guilty of any wrongdoing, even if everyone believes they're behind the deaths of their ex-girlfriends. Let us all take a collective angry sigh at that. Lauren O'Brien, the new girl at school, has a dark past of her own, and she's desperate for a fresh start. Except when she starts a relationship with Robbie, her chance is put in jeopardy. During what's meant to be their last weekend together, Lauren stumbles across evidence that might just implicate Robbie. And after a third death rocks the town, she must decide whether to end things with Robbie or risk becoming another cautionary tale. This is an edge-of-your-seat YA thriller that's perfect for fans of Karen McManus and Holly Jackson. Make sure you pick that up now wherever books are sold. And thank you once again to The One That Got Away With Murder by Trish Lundy for sponsoring today's show. Okay. um, General impressions. We're going to talk specifically about why we liked it so much, but the general impression of the show... What genre is this? I mean, like, what is this show? What if people going into it can expect? What should they be ready for if you haven't talked about it? I should say right now, we haven't spoiled anything. But, but we're from gonna. here on out, <laughs> you are on your own recognizance for being spoiled. The thing that... So I guess the note I have to myself, and I think we talked about this maybe on the, the last episode of the regular show that Lindelhoff in the run-up to it was calling this a remix. And that was kind of the only thing that kept me interested. That and um, Regina King being Mm. cast in a lead role, because I was like, wait a minute, there isn't a character that neatly maps onto that, so either it's a new character or they're going to gender cross or race cross one of the existing ones that I thought was interesting. But the idea of a remix, I was like, okay, this is not going to be Zack Snyder's turgid, faithful Watchmen movie adaptation. It's going to be something else. I like The Watchmen. I've taught The Watchmen in various contexts. I think it's a really interesting book that also has a lot of problems, also showing its age in a lot of way. I like Lindelhoff. I wasn't in on The Leftovers, but I like some of the other stuff he did. So that was enough to put it on our list to say, let's give this a <laughs> world. I'm so glad I did. But Lindelhoff calling it a remix was a red herring, a fabrication, a useful fib. I don't know what you call because this is really a sequel. For all intents and purposes, it's everything that happened in the comic Watchmen 
but then we jump forward 30 years and pick up with other stuff. Is that right? Well, I think kind of. I think it is a remix in that he took some liberties and changed some details or filled in details where there were none in the book to set the stage for the universe of the show. But Mm. yeah, the show that we've watched is a sequel functionally to the story that happens in the book. But in the book, we don't, we don't know the race of hooded justice, for instance, who's, you know, um, that's a major plot line here. We are given to assume he's white. All the superheroes are white. Um, As I was reading reviews of the show that also reflected on the book it notes that like very notably race is absent totally from, absent from the discussion of political and cultural issues that come up in the book and so many political and cultural issues do come up that it's it is a glaring absence once you notice that they're not talking about it at all so i do think it's a remix in that way that lindelof was like okay well let's say that the very first superhero was black um that changes a lot about what that superhero would have been standing for what might have been motivating him and they write that whole story in Lindelof creates the whole backstory um for her to justice in one of the episodes so I think it's a remix in that way that he's like let's take some assumptions from the book and shake them up and then write the universe that would have as logically as possible <laughs> logically right. followed from that remix so I think it's a remixy sequel yeah I guess what I mean by it's not a remix is if if you handed Watchmen to one of to Tim Blake Nelson's character, right? Mm, mm-hmm. That the actual graphic novel and, and he read is like, yeah, that's right. That's what happened. Oh now, yeah, these are you're right. It fills these sure. are the mm-hmm. things that happened. It doesn't erase or amend. Now I think you're right to say it fills in blanks. It alters some assumptions we made, but you, there's not really anything in the book that like actually the the sequel um, the TV show countermands that or undermines it really it is a continuation now the remixing happens in the sequel element it doesn't remix anything in the in the original at least that doesn't sort of account for itself like with hooded justice which we'll Mm -hmm. talk about here in a minute there's that it's an eerie show um it has the lindell hoffian mystery thing going but i think in a lot of ways that makes sense more than just being a puzzle box of withholding information just for the sake of withholding it a lot of the characters don't know the true story of what's happened. Um, a lot of it is them finding out for themselves, whether it's Angela going back and trying to find out her ancestry or Tim Blake Nelson's character Looking Glass getting a video that shows him what actually happened, so on and so forth. So there's an un- it's a mystery and an unraveling rather than you know the the critique of um, the loss of loss the TV show that mm-hmm. Lindelof was a part of was. It's just a bunch of weird stuff, and we never really get an answer. It's weird for weirdness sake. It's a certainly weird show, but its appealing strangeness is maybe its central pleasure. Uh, What do you think about that? Yeah, I think that's true. My notes um, refer to a phrase that we've shared over the years in media mess, where I think that's a you-ism originally, Mm. um, where you get dropped in into the middle of a universe without a lot of explanation. And the first episode does that beautifully. Like, all right, we're in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Everyone performing Oklahoma the Musical is black. The cops are wearing masks. It's a black cop being attacked by a white driver and like sort of the switch on police violence, what, yep. what that, how that has gotten overturned. It's just unsettling in really amazing ways. And throughout the series, you continue to wonder exactly how many things have been turned on their heads and in what ways they've been turned on their heads. And the answer to that question keeps moving mm-hmm. um, and keeps taking you forward where it's not like, 
it's not a switcheroo. It's not like, oh, this thing that you thought was the thing is actually wrong. It's just, oh, there was more to the story. And when you get the more to the story, you get more weirdness, but also you are able to explain some of the previously existing weirdness, which I do think is Lindelof at his very best. And um, that was some of the stuff that we saw come out in The Leftovers as well. This like, wait, what is the world? Why is it this way? Here's like just a little nugget that unlocks some things. But while it unlocks things, it also makes other things more complicated and confusing. Yeah, right. The mystery sort of widens and deepens Mm -hmm. um, as you go rather than just becoming more and more of uh, stakes of figuring out what the puzzle is. Because even at the beginning, the central mystery, there is, I guess one thing in thinking about it since then is that there is no central plot line that you care about absolutely the most because there are plot lines you care about and they intersect but Regina King's relationship with Cal only somewhat relates to her relationship with her grandfather in the history of the Tulsa Raids riots and the Mm -hmm. creation of superheroes and Lady True uh, her origin story uh, with Ozymandias or Adrian Veidt played by Jeremy Irons is its own narrative threads and they all do intersect at the end but they each have their own problems. They each have their sort of big bad. They each have their obstacles and plot twists and character beats. That makes it so the puzzle box itself is, I guess, really what Lady True is doing, I guess. Like, mm-hmm. what's, what, what is the main plot of the show is really interesting to me in thinking about it again. Like, what do we care about the most at the end versus what, you know, the big spectacle at the end is, mm-hmm. is kind of different, which is a little bit remarkable to me. Yeah, it is. And I think that's also similar to how things shift along through the course of the book, that through most of the book, you're trying to figure out who's killing superheroes and why. And it turns like when it turns out that Adrian Veidt is behind the whole thing, and then he's going to drop this giant octopus in the name of, you know, giving humanity something to gather together in fear and like, you know, find some unity for once um, by being afraid, by all being afraid of the same thing, like that shifts in a, in a really meaningful way right at the end of the book. Like the book gets momentum in a hurry. Yes. (laughs) And I think the show did that same thing where there's a lot of interesting, like, lingering and a lot of showing you some questions and making you wonder some things, but stuff really does pick up in the last couple of like episodes seven, eight and nine are where you really start to get that juice. And I think Lindelof, Mm -hmm. I'm going to assume did that on purpose and that we're given to wonder, I think in the second or third episode is when we meet Lady True and there's like references to the millennium clock. It's like, what is she building? What is the point and why? Um, And I think familiarity with the comic lent me some uh, confidence there as a viewer of like, okay, well, she's probably got like superhero aspirations of her own. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, when you think about, it's a thing now in pilots in season ones um, of multi-season series that you're going to have a stinger at the end of the first season, you know, famously Ned Stark at Game of Thrones or other places. This has a stinger at the end of the first episode that actually doesn't turn out to be super related to the the big bad plot, like the galactic plot of the yeah. show. Yeah. Um, you think it's going to be about that, but it it is. But that's more <laughs> of character building for Angela, who in a lot of ways is sort of a bystander towards the big spectacle at the mm-hmm. end, um, which I thought was really fascinating to look at uh, in the in looking back at, especially how have we've come to understand how super movies work, that the Marvel Semitic Universe has trained us, that they all intersect, and they're all going to care about the same thing, and it's all about the Infinity Stones, and we're all going to be here right, at the right, end, right. where... <laughs> 
Angela's only there at the end because she cares about Cal. She doesn't know about the Adrian Veidt, Ozymandias stuff. Really, no one knows at that point. Lady, she, she knows Lady True, but she's not really intersecting with yeah, her that and, much. And you end the first episode with that giant shootout at the ranch and thinking that this is going to be a season about masked vigilantes and superheroes dealing with race issues yes and like right. trying to take down the seventh cavalry which is functionally the clan and then the rest of it gets filled in as you go mm-hmm. along about like oh wait actually like that's just one tiny piece of this whole big universe that has existed going on now for decades with these characters and all of their entanglements with each other and these motivations that they have yeah that's really mm-hmm. fascinating too because at the end, the Seventh Cavalry turns out to be kind of an afterthought. Like they were a pawn in a in a larger yeah. game, mm-hmm. and but, and this is I think the central emendation from a thematic point of view that the the series makes, and, and we talked about before, is the centering of black characters and blackness in the mm-hmm. whole series, and making them you know responding to subject to white supremacy but also by the end existing outside of it is kind of radical in its own case too like the seventh cavalry is sort of sitting there and lady true just like vaporizes them and they're gone like right. they're not they're not even that interesting i mean they're bad they're clearly bad but they're not interesting to the show um so it doesn't center their own racial hatred in a way that could go wrong and sometimes takes over similar kinds of stories talking about racial violence or oh, sympathy for the devil kind of stuff no these are just stooges and they're being played uh, for a wider game, but it's really Lady True, Ozymandias, Dr. Manhattan, Angela Abard. They emerge as the central characters, and the relationship between them is the plot rather mm-hmm. than what are these these evil white people going to do. But the show sets you up. I think it plays so expertly with their expectations. Yeah. I was ready at the end of this to be, oh, this is superheroes, cops, mixed up, inverted blackness, whiteness, police, outlaws, in-laws, Rorschachs, mass, whatever, mm-hmm. where white supremacy is the bad guy. Yeah. But it was, I, it was and it wasn't. It wasn't, yeah, it wasn't. I would have, I would have watched a whole yes. season of them dragging people into Looking Glass's crazy interrogation room yep. and like, and trying to suss out who's racist and who isn't and then unspooling how this has happened and that the, like the seventh cavalry as it exists in the beginning of the show is a response to the red Fredations. And mm. really, uh, I think the show and we'll get to themes, you know, really as we go down the line, but is in large part about looking at race and fear and yes. they hang a really bright lantern on um what the response i think predictably would be by a subset of white people who were used to having power if black people were to be given reparations um and recognized by like recognized and apologized to by the government for the ways that they've been exploited for centuries and given equal standing in mm-hmm. society that there will always be this like subset of i think one of the arguments of the show is that like this will always be the response there will yeah. always be a subset of people who who are used to having power and their response to having to seeing anyone else be given power is fear for the loss of their own. And that fear comes out in the form of violence. And in this case, it's racial violence. Um, you could have like, there, there was an potentially like an interesting way to flip this. And like, I think a couple of decades ago, a remix of this could have been really gender focused. Yes. Um, yep. There's are some interesting questions that could be asked around that, but yeah, I, I was down for what I thought the season was going to be after the right. pilot, and then it went to so many more places. I was going to ask you about the gender dynamics, too, where um, racial violence and racial prejudice are clearly at the center. 
to my knowledge, and I could have just missed it, there isn't much even of subtextual work being done around the female characters, about feminism writ large. The work the show does is making a bunch of interesting female characters yes. of multiple yeah. races, mm-hmm. and it sort of just shoots past it saying, okay, this is maybe the end point of what we want a TV show like this to look like when it comes to gender representation. I don't know. I just, there wasn't sexual violence mm-hmm. that happens. I was, I was yeah. like, please don't. Please, because we get enough of that in a whole bunch of other sources. You could have seen this show go that way, um, but it didn't touch that for good or feel, for ill. I, I wasn't quite sure, other than it was largely their interesting, relevant, capable consequential Mm -hmm. female characters that exist in the show. And that's kind of the statement it seems to be making. And that's it. Is that enough? What do do you think about that kind of representation or, I mean, that's the kind of represent, that's the kind of world I want to live in, right? Where I just get to be a competent, interesting person where gender doesn't matter. And currently it does matter. Currently you still have to, you know, like exist out in the world or exist in business spaces and be aware of the ways that your gender is projecting. And I think given that the Lindelof show is set functionally in 2019, um, it only works that it's not commented on because we know that we are also living in like a super, a universe where there are superheroes and like, you know, dirigible. (laughs) Yes, and, right. And if that's possible, then maybe in this version of 2019, because of what happened 30 years ago on 11-2, somehow gender has also been solved. Um, I, I don't think that the show would have served itself well to try to take on both gender and race in big, mm. meaningful ways. And so to try to do the things that they were doing around race, I think it was the right decision to just put in like amazing kick-ass female characters that have interesting jobs and they're smart and there are no jokes that are like gender based. They are are read as competent by everyone that they encounter. And they, they also don't have to do a lot of like jockeying to prove that they can do it, even though they're a girl, like the fact of their, the fact of their femaleness really is just not an issue um, and not realistic for 2019, but a beautiful dream. And it works, I think in this superhero universe really well. Yeah. And, you know, it's it's not commented upon at all that Regina King's character, Angela Abar, is effectively sort of a Batman character, right? right? Without the, right. you mean, the physical gifts, the detective mm-hmm. stuff. She's an orphan. She, yeah, it's but it's not commented on, and she's a girl, and or, you know, look, even a girl can do it, or, or, or uh, one of her police, you know, colleagues saying, wow, you're strong for, for gr- a girl. woman. Right. There's mm-hmm. none of that. That's, it's mm-hmm. just completely uncommented on, and I think you're right, taking two bites at the apple where centering race and making that the, the cultural concern, the cultural emendation and trying to do it with gender as well may have been more difficult though. As you said, if, if superpowers exist and we blew by gender inequality, that racial inequality still exists is interesting to think about like why choose that you could have chosen to blow by the racial stuff and made the gender dynamics, the durable prejudice. And maybe it would have been a similar show. I don't know. I just interesting to look at now, but I think the thing that was most exciting to me from a narrative, a storytelling point of view, but also like a cultural corrective or a cultural rethinking is that the, in this version of the superhero world, the idea of a caped hero is a racial origin story. It is Mm -hmm. born out of the experience of being black and being subject to white supremacy and looking for a way to deal with that that makes more sense to me than any superhero origin story I've ever seen. 
Yes. It just looks like that. It feels emotionally resonant that this particular character at this particular moment with something that happens to him puts on a hood and kicks some dudes' asses, feels good about it, sees some real results, and it kind of spirals both out and out of control from there writ large. Um, and then what he does to recognize sort of the, the Du Boisian double consciousness of needing to put on white makeup underneath the mask mm-hmm. so that people think he's white is just an incredible layering of signification that's intellectually stimulating and additionally to be just freaking cool on yeah, the surface. It is. I think it's uh, that's such a great point about this as the most believable superhero origin story for that reason mm. of like – in Batman, you know, like Bruce Wayne looks like Batman. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and, and Peter Parker looks like Spider-Man. And it's just this like sort of open secret in most superhero stories that like somehow magically the people who interact with them every day have no idea who they are. But it makes mm. just a ton of sense for Hooded Justice, especially, and to have to put on a mask as a black man who's looking for a way to exact justice that he is not given a shot at by culture and society at that time. And the only way to fight back in to fight back and have an effect is to disguise himself, um, both as a hero with this hood, but also to disguise himself as a white man for his own protection. Like a, a white man who wanted to fight those same battles that Lindelof writes hooded justice into in the show would have been unpopular but right. would not have needed the same kind of disguise. And so it, it writes into it, like, why do we have these people in costumes? Which is one of the things that kind of bugged me about the book is like, mm. okay, so why did the people who wanted to fight the baddies in the 1940s and became the first Watchmen or the first Minutemen, like, why did one of them have to dress like an owl? Right. And it, and it has right. that same conceit to it of like, everyone just pretends they don't recognize the guy in the owl costume. <laughs> right. <laughs> And I think Lindelof evolves how the superheroes work well. And even like, you know, Gene Smart's character, Lori here refers to Angela as Angela when she's in her sister yes, night right. outfit. And she recognizes Tim Blake Nelson as looking glass while he's not in his gear. And they, I think they point to that trope of like, we all know who you are. Mm, you know, yeah. I know who it is under there um, in a way that you couldn't tell with Hooded Justice under the costume and under the white makeup. And it, it's important for the show, especially, and the treatment of race that you wouldn't know who that was. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, you know, the Batman Angela Abar character, she has her own origin story, right, about um, wanting to be a cop. And then she's both a cop and not a cop. The interesting yeah. relationship between the caped heroes and the police police here but like bruce wayne the you know the probably from an emotional emotional reason his origin story is the most familiar and the most archetypal right his parents Mm -hmm. are gunned down in front of him by you know a common thug to take money in this crime-ridden city so ergo the right reaction for me is to be an extra legal enforcer of right not law not the law but just of right where Really, Bruce Wayne with a bill- billions of dollars, his <laughs> ability to affect social change could have been running for office or starting a giant philanthropy or really get involved in the structural issues that make mm-hmm. Gotham what it is. Whereas this character doesn't have that access. They're, they don't, they're, their resort, if they want to see change, if they want to protect the people they want to protect and punish the people or prevent the people from doing these terrible things, 
is really punches and kicks, which makes just a ton of sense. It also got me thinking about 20th century myth-making writ large. It just happened to Martin Luther King Day this weekend, and some of the central 20th century, 20th century mythological creations in America are black people who have come to prominence by doing extraordinary things in the name of racial justice. You think of mm. your Rosa Parks, your Jackie Robinsons, mm-hmm. your Martin Luther King Jr.'s, your Malcolm X's, your Muhammad Ali's. Like there's a whole cadre of modern myth um, that has a similar kind of origin story of being responses to white supremacy, sticking up for advocating for, dying for civil rights. And there is really no equivalent outside the arena of racial injustice that has made similar kinds of myth-making in my lifetime. Like, yeah. this is stuff that's, or my my parents' lifetime, for sure. And to see that portrayed in this superhero trope, I thought just made so much sense. as almost like, it was so genius. I hesitate to use words, because the, the thing about genius is you see the thing that seems so obvious that no one else mm-hmm. saw. I was like, mm-hmm. duh! Like, <laughs> duh, this makes so much, why didn't, maybe someone else has done this before, like Black Panther is sort of similar, but it's outside of like the American system and it's Wakanda. Mm-hmm. And it's like, but mm-hmm. this is like, embeds it right in it. It just made so much sense to me. And I haven't seen a lot of criticism by black writers of the show. Uh, I've looked for it. Um, mm-hmm. And maybe I've just missed it. If anyone knows, podcast at, pod, uh, podcast at bookriot.com, send it to me. But I'm really, am looking forward to a big think piece um, am I right? I, I, am I right? Are thinking? Are people thinking differently? Are there mm-hmm. are there kinds of elisions or flattening out that I'm just not seeing? Because yeah. at face value, I'm not seeing it. I just yeah, the thing that I really want is like the Ta-Nehisi Coates reading of yeah. the Watchmen, who writes HBO superheroes comics. Right, exactly. Yeah, like he yeah. loves and writes comics, and that would make yeah. a ton of Roxanne sense. Roxanne Gay too has written comics. Right, and, right. Yeah. Know, so. And, anyway, so that that's to me the thing that got me all jazzed up and you guys heard me talk about how ner- how how nerdy I got into the all black Oklahoma at the very beginning we talked about <laughs> that and little did i know that it really that i should have seen more like no literally they're all black or or they're almost all black the characters mm-hmm. that even the ones you're not expecting mm-hmm. um or we haven't shown you already are going to be black people uh from there and i think that's it. and then and like i said before the thrilling strangers those are the really the two things um, that were the drivers. Now, there's something cool about seeing interesting visuals and giant squids and superhuman gods and, you know, this weird Europa planet with you have the the, the, the water lily babies. <laughs> and there's all sorts of interesting stuff. But I think all of that would have just been window dressing yeah. if the central generator of plot and care wasn't so resonant with me personally. Yeah, I agree. All right, let's do another ad spot and let's talk about cast. Okay, I I tasked us each with picking our three favorite. Very hard for me. I realized (laughs) three was tough. Let's go three to one. Um, You go first. Your third of three. Oh, oh, my third of three? Um, Gene Smart. Tied. I'm cheating already. Tied with Tim Blake Nelson as Looking Glass. I loved them. I loved them both very much. Kind of a duel, right? They they have some interesting scenes Mm -hmm. together. Mm -hmm. Um, They both kind of have similar jobs, right? They look at other people, they're evaluating them. Tim Blake Nason, Nelson doesn't, he's not, this is one of the things about Watchmen if you don't know it, there's only one person with a true superpower in, in yeah. all the shows. It's Dr. Manhattan. Everyone else is just really good at something weird and maybe good beyond the realm of possibility good, <laughs> yeah. but like they, they haven't been gamified by a yeah, spider right. from space or anything like that. When I think the show, and when we go down to themes later, like a lot of the show is about trauma and generational mm. trauma, especially, yes. but uh, Looking Glass and Lori Blake have both experienced 
big, dramatic, traumatic, life-shaping moments. And their careers are impacted by that in a way that's really believable. Mm-hmm. Um, that like because he was there when the squid hit when he was younger, of course, Wade like is suffering from that experience still and has spun it into wanting to like fight the source of evil in the world. And for him, that source of evil is racist. And that Jede Smart, who whose character was a superhero back in the day has flipped and starts working for the FBI. And now she's catching the vigilantes and has sort of repackaged her own past into something that fits Mm -hmm. into the world of the story. I thought there, the performances were just interesting and nuanced and they were both really fun to watch on screen. Like I wanted some sort of spinoff about Lori and looking glass, like fighting other crimes. Oh, wait for my, (laughs) wait for my, what I want from season two. Okay. Law and Order Capes. That's what yeah. I want with them as the two, the t- Jerry Orbach and yes. Jesse L. Martin. Yeah. Um, okay. What's your number three? Uh, just just another note on that. Both. I think you're totally right to look at their origin stories and trauma as informing the characters they become. Tim Blake Nerson's character, Looking Glass, one of the few survivors of the squid attack mm-hmm. in you know the New Jersey, New York area, becomes a post-traumatic stress disorder kind of a moment for him. But his central ability is to divine if someone's telling the truth. And that's, you know, a metonym for his interest in what is the truth of what happened right. that day. You know, like, yeah. Not surprising. Lori was raped by her then-husband um, at the time, who was a superhero. And then her, what's her job now? Enforcing the law against caped heroes. So both of mm-hmm. them are an inversion of the thing that created them, and they're doing something that is kind of a transference of yeah. that trauma and put in a, in a different way. My number three is Louis Gossett Jr. as... William Abar, so a.k.a. Good. Hooded Justice. I couldn't take my eyes off him. I thought his performance was very difficult because you needed to both like him and be suspicious of him at the same time as an old sort of wheelchair-bound man, much like Angela herself was. We were supposed to think about him like Angela was. Like, this guy just hung someone, but he's in a wheelchair, but he's telling me the truth, and I'm sort of drawn to him, and I'm related to him, but he also did something terrible. I just thought he lent a really a really interesting set of history and gravitas, and that only grows as you know what his story is and what he's been through and why he's there. Um, But I thought he was really great. So that's my number three. What's your number two? My number two is Jeremy Irons. That's what I have for number two as well, as Adrian Veidt, a.k.a. Ozymandias. Man, just deeply weird, and he owned it 110%. (laughs) And you can tell he's having fun, too. Like, Jeremy Irons is in on the joke, from the get go, but yes. doesn't give like, but he's not hamming it up. He doesn't give it away. He just seems to really be relishing it. And I had the same response that I had um, to Lewis Gossett Jr. and that you were saying as well. Like, I just could not take my eyes off of him. And that's really saying something because he lives in this strange world. Everything around him is weird. He's doing like really bonkers stuff that you don't totally understand <laughs> until the very end, but it's so compelling. Mm. He, he just so compelling. And I think he's one of those superhero characters too that you can see like had was supposed to have had like a real sex appeal a couple decades prior and would have been like the one of the ones that everyone was paying attention to and we know from the book that like there's a whole line of like Ozymandias action figures and like everyone wants a piece of the Ozymandias business and he seems world weary in the right way also from that just I just loved him I was so just so so delighted by it you, so his scenes are sprinkled throughout really the first six where he's kind of by himself and these weird companion 
clone people. You don't know what they are for a long time. And even still, even later, yeah. you're like, okay, Super I guess I weird. kind of understand. But I don't, he's playing, like, he's acting like he's in a one-man show on Broadway, which he kind of is. Yeah, like, he's he looking is. into the camera. It's very broad. It's very, <laughs> it's a great analogy. A very stylized, like, he's, he, I, I don't know what his note was. Like, is that, because this, I feel like this performance could have gone sideways too, because it's a real choice to do yeah, it this way. Yeah. And it's, uh, you do have to wonder, like, what were those casting meetings like, you know, yeah. where they were like, okay, so here's the deal. <laughs> You've been exiled to a moon of Jupiter and you basically live in a giant terrarium and it's clones that you grow from an aquatic baby farm. And, then they are going to like perform plays for you and then you kill them and catapult them into outer space. Cool? cool. Yeah, it's it's and he's doing all this like growling weird kind of discussion yeah. like yeah. this and you're yeah. like what it's like part Austin Powers and part like James Earl Jones like I have no idea what's happening but I loved <laughs> I so loved great. it. It's so great. And his increasing mania about getting off out of this mm-hmm. place he's in. There's there's certain to see Ozymandias desperate, and then yeah. at this critical moment, and it takes a little while to figure out, he gets a horseshoe and a cake, and he's exciting, like, what the? But it's his, basically, skeleton key to get out from where he's trapped. You see how low he sunk, and he does seem to come out of it a bit transformed, which maybe we should talk about when we talk about the end, where mm-hmm. he's more of a team player um, towards the end. learned a certain humility. Dr. Manhattan has put them in this idealized universe because that's what he wants. He wants a perfect place to live, and Dr. Manhattan's created one, but he finds out, he, he's exposed to his own ego, and he says, I can't remember the line exactly, it's like, it's perfect, but it's not mine. Yeah. Right? And that's and, why and he has he, to leave. Right, and he, he does ask Manhattan to make him a place, or Manhattan yes. offers to make him a place where he'll be worshipped. Yep. And I, I think worship is the word that they use in their conversation in that episode, or something like that, recognized and worshipped. And he, you're right, he finds out that's, that that's not all it's cracked up to be, mm-hmm. and that it's like that, it's very one-dimensional that experience yeah yeah and ozymandias in the in the original comic is kind of one. he seems like a cool above it all kind of character and matthew good plays him that way in the watchman movie and i think you can see the you need something else going on with ozymandias mm-hmm. then he's just sort of a logician uh of yeah. a kind so and jeremy irons certainly is that like he's a he's like intellectually horny is the only way i can describe <laughs> it like he's just looking for something to do stuff to too much. No, I, I'm just like, in, can we make that the show title? <laughs> <laughs> all right. Number one, I suspect we might have the same person, but maybe not. Maybe My not. notes just say in all caps, Regina King yeah, me forever. Too. Me too. <laughs> Har- so, harder role than it looks, I think. Oh, man. And I was thinking about her last night. I remember when they announced that she was cast in the show a couple years ago, talking about it on the podcast with you and being like, I'm going to watch this because I'm in for Regina King. That's right. King. Exactly right. Whatever. And I've been in for Regina King since like Jerry Maguire <laughs> when she was wow. Cuba, yeah, Cuba Gooding Jr.'s wife. wife I remember, yeah. Like, yeah, I just remember that performance that she does. She does so many things so well and makes it look way easier than it actually is to be like tender and tough and serious. Like I mean business, but Mm -hmm. also I'm, you know, I mean business, but also just like the right amount of aggressive to, to get things done. And in the relationship with Cal in this show, like we see like tender and tough and serious and sexy and all of these things packed into this woman. And then as we get her backstory, just remarkable, but uh, her face does so much work. Yes, yes. And 
the episodes where she's taken nostalgia and she's experiencing her grandfather's memories. Like I had to pause the TV for a couple at a couple of moments and like look at her face, but also really think about what it must be like for Mm. a black woman to be portraying these characters that are very like in a very present way on screen, experiencing such racial violence. That's part of our cultural history. And that must be very real and very present for them in a way that I can't understand and relate to. And she brings all of that through. Mm. Like, I understand why she's pissed the whole yes. time, yeah. you know, <laughs> and what's in it for her. Um, and it seems like the right amount of motivation for what she has experienced. And then especially the betrayal by Judd that she comes to understand that she's been experiencing without realizing it. Yeah. She just, man, and she's jacked. So she's I was like, jacked. She looks like she would be like a great pound for pound boxer right yeah. now. Like she's not very, she's not a big woman at the tall at all, but she looks like a pound for pound. She would just bore through you with her fist. And she does this thing. And I think it's hard for anyone to do. Um, but especially in this kind of a context where she, her eyes can like well up and she could get emotional yes. and then beat your ass. And you believe both of them, which is not easy. That That's not, not an easy needle to thread. It's like Kevin Costner has that eyes well up perfectly thing, yeah. but you, you don't think that he's about to hit you. No, and it wouldn't be no, 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 no. Yeah. Like if Angela Abar looks like she's about to cry, like you need to put on protective gear because you're about to get it. <laughs> right. So she was great. And it's not a... Sh- it's not a showy kind of performance, but a lot of it is through her. We have to we have to emotionally resonate with her feelings, mm-hmm. I think, for the series to work. And we do. And it's a credit yes. to her. It's credit to the writing, but especially a credit to her as well. So she's just phenomenal from start to finish. I have one honorable mention, and it may it might have made the top three if I had gone back to watch the the series again. Maybe you can guess by why I'm saying this. Um Cal, Dr. Manhattan, Yaya, Yaya, mm. Yaya Abdul Mateen the second. You don't know what he's really playing, what his acting job really is until yeah. like episode seven. So I wonder if going back, because I did notice him like, boy, that guy's really interesting and good. And what a, what a remarkable father. It turns out all it needs, the, the series is sort of saying to be a good dad, you have to be super powered. I don't know. It's a weird statement about masculinity. But anyway, um, he was so good. And then another extremely difficult acting job that Billy Crudup failed that in the movie is being interesting as an all-knowing blue naked glow. Yes. Not an easy look for an actor, I, I don't think. Man, I love Billy Crudup, but I did not know he played Dr. Manhattan. Tough look for our guy, home. Billy Crudup. Oh, yeah, that's that's not great. I'm curious, like, in a morbid way about going back to watch that. I, I agree. This uh, actor gets, and I don't have his name in front of me. Yeah. Um, definitely an honorable mention if even just for the final episode yes. literally putting his body on the line yep. um in a way that like that can't have been an easy performance and to bring so much nuance out of it and i kind of wondered like you know sometimes when there's a big twist in a show the writers don't even tell the actors until yeah, the twist is I coming wonder. like did he know all along because mm. the character isn't aware of it like cal is not aware that he yep. is dr manhattan um so it would have been interesting to know if he if the actor knew that his character had these powers, but the character was unaware at the time. Mm. Um, but just, I, I was really, really struck by it in, in that last episode. And Bob and I were just sort of looking at each other like, wow, he's just, he's just bringing it. Mm-hmm. And in the, in the previous episode, in episode eight, when we don't know um, who he is going to be yet, right. like, the, the, like the humor and warmth that come through in that relationship. Um, just 
remarkable. Really I feel like good I'm going to say remarkable a lot. He was wonderful. This was so well cast, and I'm really Very glad that, well cast. that it wasn't all recognizable super famous people like it was fun to see gene smart show up and be like ah oh, designing women yeah well, that's true gene smart showing up yeah a don lot of johnson really interesting. yeah really yeah he was really good too i like the cast um a lot let's do another ad break and then we're gonna english major it up for a minute today's episode is brought to you by Flatiron books publisher of the familiar by lee bardugo this is one I'm actually super excited about. I liked Lee Bardugo's other adult fantasy books. And so I'm really looking forward to this one. It's set in the Spanish Golden Age during a time of high stakes political intrigue and glittering wealth. It follows Luzia, a servant in the household of an impoverished Spanish nobleman who reveals a talent for little miracles. Her social climbing mistress demands Luzia use her gifts to win over Madrid's most powerful players. But what begins as simple amusement takes a dangerous turn. Luzia will need to use every bit of her wit and will to survive, even the help of Guillén Santangel, an immortal familiar whose own secrets could prove deadly for them both. So The Familiar by Lee Bardugo is on sale now. And like I said, it's a must read of the season. It's perfect for anyone who loves history, a little bit of magic, a lot of danger. You can get your copy now at LeeBardugoTheFamiliar.com. And thanks again to Flatiron Books, publisher of The Familiar by Lee Bardugo for sponsoring this episode. Today's episode is brought to you by Greenleaf Book Group. No summer vacation should be without a great read. And I don't know about you, but I am partial to mysteries and thrillers for my hot month reads. It's hot girl reading summer always over here. And from the award-winning librettist of Legally Blonde, the musical and the screenwriter of Freaky Friday, Heather Hawk, comes the page-turning psychological thriller, The Trouble with Drowning. So when author Eden Hart floats into Tucson's Antigone books and all her dazzling perfection to give a reading, Kat, a struggling writer, can't help but compare herself. Thankfully, Kat's life starts to take on its own Eden-like glow when her literary future takes shape and she falls madly in love with Jacob. As demons from her past begin to surface, Kat's mental health craters and this halcyon dream slips through her fingers. For the fastest paced slow burn you won't be able to put down, be sure to check out The Trouble with Drowning by Heather Hawk on Amazon or your retailer of choice. And thanks again to Greenleaf Book Group for sponsoring this episode. What is it about? What are the big ideas? So we already talked about the centering, unpacking, exploration of what putting race at the center of a superhero story might be, how that opens up some ideas of thinking about race and the cultural imagination is one. What else do we have? I have a couple of ideas. I think you mentioned trauma. Another The, the word I was using was legacy, and trauma is like mm. bad legacy, I guess, yeah. is one mm-hmm. way to think about trauma. How things that happened before um, echo through time and people and family lines. So much of it is about covering what happened in the past in the show writ large, but also what your own legacy is going to be. Um, Mm -hmm. Ozymandias is concerned with this. Lady True is concerned with this. Dr. Manhattan is overtly, like literally concerned with what's going to happen with his abilities um, once it's passed on. The show, the Tulsa Race Riots, the Reparations, the African American History Museum, the Millennium Clock, so much of it is about the endurance of presence through time and what we will do to prevent legacy and what we will do to create one as both, it's almost being equally damaging. 
Mm. Right. Um, so that's one that really stuck out to me. What else did you have for issues and ideas? Yeah, I didn't hang it on legacy, but thinking about what the characters were driven for, I think a lot of this show is about like what is the nature of humanity and the nature of power mm-hmm. and the desire to have power and what we do with it. That in the comic, Ozymandias does what he does by dropping the squid in the name of trying to achieve world peace. And Lady True is doing the same thing. Like she's right. going to try to take all of Dr. Manhattan's powers, do all of the things that she thinks he should have done in the first place to solve the world's problems and un- underlying it all is really the question, like, could the world achieve peace? Um, and I, I think that's driving it, like that the comic is set in the Cold War and the show that we just watched is set in the present with all of the present problems and race really being at the forefront, but also all the same kinds of super scary nuclear weapons that exist in the world. And there's a moment where Jeremy Irons is talking to, yeah, where Ozymandias is talking to Dr. Manhattan and he's like, why do, why do they keep making these weapons? And mm-hmm. the answer, and I'm paraphrasing, but the answer is like, because it makes them, like ironically, because it makes them feel more secure right. to have these giant scary machines to point at each other and, and to threaten each other with. And I, I felt like that is what is really at the heart of all of this is could we have is a peaceable world possible or is human nature such that like even with superheroes mm. who try to you know remove the obstacles or do all of the good things or solve all of the problems will there always be this response and one of the sort of microcosm examples of it is what happens with um, the Red Fredations with American yes. society making reparations to black people and that there is still a fear-based response to it. Um, yeah. Also, I thought the generational trauma thing really that stuck out to me because it's all, it's very much like on the page or on the screen of the show. Mm. But I, I even think a character refers to epigenetic trauma at one point. Maybe yes, it's they in do. The P- in the PTSD episode with Wade. Yep. Um, and just notably, I think this is something that's entering our cultural conversation. And so it's coming out in forms of entertainment as well. The last um, season, the most recent and final season of The Affair on Showtime turned out to be also largely about generational trauma and epigenetic mm. trauma in a way that I think these are questions that our artists are starting to have new language around. Um, we've always known that, you know, what happened three decades or three centuries ago in a family has the possibility to have ripple yeah. effects all the way forward. But now we have a word for it and we have science behind it. And it's really fascinating to me to see how that's coming out in art. Yeah, that's really interesting too. And I guess kind of related to the epigenetic trauma, John, trauma through time is you know, one thing I've thought about superhero, the idea of a superhero over time is the Batman Superman fantasy, which is if I could just punch hard enough, I could fix things, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. If I could just kick hard enough. Well, it turns out one thing this show I think is wrestling with is even if you are a god, you cannot fix white supremacy. Right. It is not it is not fixable by force. It is not fixable by uh enforcement, really. It needs to have some other kind of I don't know, structural change, you know, hearts and minds kind of a change. I think there's at one point in this series where someone says, you know, if for an all power for Bing, he, he won Vietnam and he peaced out. It would be nice if he fixed some problems down here. And it got me thinking like, well, Dr. Manhattan can't really fix, as, at least we, what his power said is, he can't fix the souls of white supremacists. Mm-hmm. Like there's no, there's no punch that will hit hard enough to fix that. There's no, no person is smart enough to fix nuclear problems. No person is smart enough to develop a sense of, the law 
that will fix what ails us. And so you get these, even the, to see the extremely competent, the extremely powerful people still feel helpless, mm-hmm. I think is a real lesson and a real reality check, not sort of physical reality check, but emotional, moral reality check on the idea, the limits of the idea of a superhero. Ozymandias yeah. can't fix things, even right. though he's the smartest person ever. Dr. Manhattan cannot wave his hand and make a utopia. We saw, we literally saw him unable to do it, but there is no laser blast that can fix structural racism or inequality or climate change or anything. Well, maybe climate change, maybe there's some sort of cold fusion thing, but even the things (laughs) that cause that, but like that to see the limits of that and really recognize that punching and kicking is good for only a limited set of problems, even hooded Mm -hmm. justice. Okay. He can take care of these sort of physical plot threats, but the th- that's only a symptom of the deeper thing that Hood of Justice, Dr. Manhattan, has no access to. And the physical manifestation of this, I think we see so many containers in jails. I don't know if you noticed this at all, mm. but you know, doc- they have to get Dr. Manhattan in just the right cage. Ozymandias is his own kind of prison. You know, Dr. Manhattan, in order to be human, has to imprison himself in this meat suit and forget who he is. Tim Blake Nelson lives in this bunker. Um, mm. Lady True is building this giant millennium clock. Right, There's right. All of these are spaces where people are trying to exercise control by cordoning off some small part of the universe, and it works until it doesn't, because right. it's not self-sufficient, because you need other people. You need connection. It's not enough to live by yourself in utopia. And I think those two things are not separate. The idea that there is no superpower that can fix humanity, but also we need humanity. So mm-hmm. we can't. We could choose to live our, in isolation in a utopia, or we can live together in a mess. And the messes seems like we're always drawn back into the meth. You know, Lady True gets she gets she gets seduced by the idea. Well, if only I had the Infinity Gauntlet, basically. If only right. I were the one, then I, I would, could fix it. I would all. do the right things. I yeah. would do the right things. And Ozzy says, you know, I kind of say what you will about Ozzy He he thought he was doing the right thing. Now ego get involved, but that's the problem. Something else always adulterates. And if nothing adulterates, you become Doctor Manhattan, and you don't care. Right. So this idea that power. The limits of power and a fascination with power is what I was coming back to, too. And I think mm-hmm. it's so important that Watchmen got a chance to comment on the superhero fantasy in our cultural moment, yeah, just like Watchmen 1983 did in its cultural moment, because superheroes are a bigger deal now than they were in 1983, and they were a huge deal in 1983, <laughs> right. right? Like, yeah. the only thing Captain America is really good for is punching his way out of problems. That's all the, All of them are good for, and the only movie you get is, well, there's someone bigger than us and meaner than us, we solve them. But once right. they're done, they've got no help. They've got no answers for us yeah, here th- down on the mortal coil. Yeah, and I think a different kind of show that wanted to play things a little more on the nose would have done something like have the A-Bar's kids watching a Marvel movie and yeah. one of the parents makes a snide remark about, you know, superheroes. Right, But right. that Lindelof lets the story do its own work mm-hmm. in that way and lets the characters dem- – like he lets the characters demonstrate their own flaws right. um, and their own humanity that point back to – right. these are – Ultimately, it's just a man in a mask. Right. Um, there, there is right. other than Doctor Manhattan, there is no superhero. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and I guess the other thing, a man in a mask, and an ability to elude the law. Right. I mean, that's the, what a super. There's a fantasy of like, well, we're going to let Batman go, and we can't catch him. Like that's his real superpower, right? It's not that he beats people up in the night. It's that he's not brought in <laughs> at some point for thousands of <laughs> thousands of indictments for assault and battery uh, out on the street. Uh, let's do favorite episodes. 
I'm not sure this is going to be as interesting of a discussion as it was when I put it on here because mm. I'm having a harder time separating them out, but I'd be curious uh, what you've got. I, I didn't rank them. Well, no, that's not true. That's not true. Um, seven and eight together are kind of a duality. And I think together they're two of my favorite hours of TVs I've ever seen together. Mm. They're just remarkable stuff. So the first one is when Angela Abar takes nostalgia. It's, it's a bottle of pills called Nostalgia that basically there's some magic pharmaceutical development where you can put your memories into pills and either take them again to re-experience those things in a more visceral way, or weirdly, someone else can take the pill and have a visceral experience of your own memories. And it's been outlawed because it was addictive for reasons that I think is really interesting. I like that they just touched on that. They didn't like really go mm-hmm. into like, there's this whole, but this is a very dangerous sort of Pandora's box situation here. And it's been outlawed and you can't do this anymore. She eats, swallows, all of her grandfather's memories at once and has an hour-long fever dream telescoping through time and place to see what he has been through, Um, which is kind of a spin on scenes we get like this, which is a flashback of someone narrating and telling themselves, Mm -hmm. but that she's actually listening, that she is actually in the bodies of all these people shot in black and white. The the style is interesting on itself, but then what you see is fascinating. And then the one that goes right kind of Mm -hmm. follows hard upon it is who Dr. Manhattan is, what she knows, what's brought her to this point. And they don't really go together. I mean, they, they're related, but they're both Angela doing a lot of work, right? I think that's part of it. Yeah. And that they're about memory and connection um, all mm-hmm. together. And one, you know, you're learning the past, and the other one, you're kind of knowing the future from Angela's point of view. Yeah. Episode eight, A God Walks Into a Bar was, or a bar, depending a bar. on how you want to. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Did um, they name her that just for that pun in that I, episode title? I can't, it's like, maybe, but also that's the seems impossible. Or maybe that's just how they got to the episode name is after right, her. Right, I'm not, right. I'm not sure. Um, that was my favorite one. I thought seven was wonderful, but episode eight, watching Angela and Dr. Manhattan meet and sit down and have drinks and him, like that he's telling her who he is and she's dubious at first, but she's willing to entertain it. She sits Mm -hmm. there and has the conversation and he starts to tell her about the life that they'll have together and answers her, you know, skeptical questions about it. And like just that dynamic and the way that the show plays with time, the way the episode was shot and edited, and also that it brings in this dynamic that we see on the page between John and Lori in the comic book where mm. he's uh, he's constantly telling her, like, I'm here with you, but also I'm in this other place experiencing this other thing because I exist in all places and times at the same time. And so I know what's going to happen. It's not that I'm making it happen, but I know what's going to happen. And they have a fight. Like, they have that interaction in the comic where he says we're going to have a fight and she says no we're not we can we can still choose not to and he's like whatever lady Mm -hmm. we're still going to have a fight um i loved that i thought that was really fun to read and i really really loved seeing it done on screen and the way i just thought it was so carefully and cleverly and creatively written and sliced together um how he tells her the story and unspools everything that she plays the right balance of skeptical and also really wants it to kind of be true yeah right yeah. <laughs> well that 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 credulous incredulity is a regina king specialty yeah yeah just I, I really really loved that that was just hands down my favorite episode um but i also really i have some honorable mentions for mm. specific reasons At episode six that creates hooded justice's backstory yeah um, just incredibly creative and it makes so much sense. And I walked away from that one like, 
how many times has Jade, uh, not J.J. Abrams, how many times has Damon Lindelof read Watchmen? Mm-hmm. And how long has he been thinking about <laughs> You texted me those questions. Why, yeah. why did you, I didn't, I didn't respond because I wanted to save it for the show, but why just, were you wondering that? What led you to just, wonder how many times? Just, it just seems like you wouldn't have come to, hey, let's write, let's do a whole episode about Hooded Justice's yeah. backstory. And by the way, here's the backstory that I've imagined for him mm-hmm. <laughs> with one reading. Like, I just want it to be true that this has been, uh, and so I'm not going to read any things with Damon Lindelof because I do not want to be like disabused (laughs) of this notion Um, but I want it to be true that he's been like deeply familiar with this and thinking about it for a jillion years because I just thought it was so well crafted Um, the episode with Wade um, Looking Glass and PTSD and discovering the truth that was my third favorite that was my third favorite episode yeah and there's that fun like there's so much fun humanity too in the moment where he's getting drunk with the woman at the bar and then it turns out that she (laughs) has been like luring him along the whole way that's just a that's a good gotcha um and I also loved the gotcha in the third episode that introduces us to Lori that she's doing this like fake bank heist to lure out a vigilante. That was great. There's so many nice little set pieces. That was one of my mm-hmm. favorite too. It's a beautiful set piece, a nice inversion of what kind of you're expecting that also makes sense within the world. Um, just really satisfying to see yeah. things executed without amount amount of forethought and detail, and just sort of like. I don't know, like visual a plume. Like it looks great. It's great to watch and mm-hmm. think about at the same time. It's really which fun. Is all I'm looking for there. Let's do one last ad break. Then we're going to talk about some of our favorite moments and then um, final thoughts and what else we might want from that. Today's episode is brought to you by Flatiron Books, publisher of 888 Love and the Divine Burden of Numbers by Abraham Chang. So this is an interesting love story. It's great for fans of Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow and High Fidelity. It's set in the mid-90s at NYU. And it follows young Wang, who has gotten the advice of love through Chinese numerology from his uncle. So he believes that he will have seven great loves in his life. And then he meets Irena in 95 and she's like the best. She's brilliant, charismatic, quick-witted, funny. They fall in love. But the thing is, she's number six. So if he is to have seven great loves, does that mean his time with Arena is going to come to an end? So this is a love letter to Western pop culture, Eastern traditions, and being a first-generation New Yorker. Make sure to check it out. And thanks again to Flatiron Books, publisher of 888 Love and the Divine Burden of Numbers by Abraham Chang for sponsoring this episode. Today's episode is brought to you by Harper Muse, publisher of Troubled Waters. Troubled Waters is an intimate portrait of two generations, a granddaughter and a grandmother, coming to terms with what it means to be family, black women, and alive in a world on fire. In heartfelt lyrical prose, Mary Inez Hegler weaves an unforgettable story of the climate crisis, black resistance, and the enduring power of family. Narrated by Janice Abbott-Pratt and written by climate justice writer Mary Anise Hegler, the Troubled Waters audiobook is available everywhere May 7th. It follows Corinne as she plans to stage a dramatic act of resistance and peels back the scabs of her family wounds and puts her safety in jeopardy. 
Both grandmother and granddaughter must bring their unspoken secrets into light to find a path to healing. Known for her essays that dissect and interrogate the climate crisis, drawing heavily on her personal experience as a black woman with deep roots in the South, Mary Inez Hegler brings us her first work of fiction titled Troubled Waters. Make sure to pick it up. Thanks again to Harper Muse, publisher of Troubled Waters, for sponsoring this episode. Favorite moments. I've got four um, okay. in no order. Why don't you start? You go first. <laughs> okay. Yeah, um, no, no I'll go. Yeah, order. you go first in no particular order. <laughs> in no particular order. I loved Adrian Veidt catapulting himself out of the bubble <laughs> and onto Europa and just that whole weird. I mean, the whole Vite storyline on your it is so deeply weird, but catapulting himself out of the bubble was fantastic. Yeah. I've got some remaining questions about the rules of that uni- that world, but it's kind of beyond the pale here. But the 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 almost like Dolly esque world building in on mm-hmm. Europa or wherever they are was really fun because you're seeing him figure you're figuring out what he's trying to figure out. Which is really cool to see something like yeah. that happen. That's not on my list, but I really like that too. I think the best set piece uh, was Lady True's introduction, where she comes into this couple's home. Oh, yeah. Because she wants their land. And she makes them a godfather offer, which is, you know, a godfather for being an offer you can't re- refuse. And her offer is they've, they've been trying to have kids and they never had biological children. And they seem happy. But also, they're older, and you can tell there's something missing. You know, they're, they're, I don't know if they shot it, or maybe I'm transferring from what you know later about it. But she comes in and says, you know what? Um, I'm a pharmaceutical genius, and I got your DNA, and I have your in- biological infant son that I made and raised to be, what, three weeks old? Like, it's a real new baby. I'll give you $5 million and your son for your house. And they, of course, they have to take it. It's both demonstrates an understanding of human nature on her part, but a terrifying coldness at the same time. And I just thought it was just one of the one of the great set pieces of the show. It's not about action. It's not a character we have any existing relationship with. We've heard her name. We've never seen her before. She's not from the comics. We don't know what she wants, but she plays it as both she's humble and kind of. Aries is the wrong word, but kind of matter of fact about the mm-hmm. whole thing that makes it seem both okay and very, very much not okay yeah. at the same time. I thought we learned a lot about that character right there, that she's not a monster, but she also very much is. And mm-hmm. that is a very interesting way of thinking about what Lady <laughs> True's true. position yeah. is at the same time. I think that was my favorite, just for all the work that it had to do, because it's not relying on any existing characters. Any, We don't know anything about this person. We need to know something about her through action. And I think... That sets up very much the move she's going to make at the end. Like it's that's just this mm-hmm. move is a very small microcosm that, taken to its logical end, leads her to say, "Well, I should just be in charge of everything." That's, yeah. that's okay. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah, right. Yeah, that does scan. Uh, what else? I, you had, got? I had two looking glass ones. I love that first uh, moment with him in the interrogation room, yeah. like flashing all of the images to the person, and just. I don't know, just something great about that character. I really liked it. But then really the a, a moment of like great humanity was in the episode where we learned about his PTSD and he has ordered like a new um, 
interdimensional like blocker technology yes, thing. Yes, yes, yes. And he throws tinfoil them hats. Tinfoil yeah, hats. Right. Like literal tinfoil hats. He yeah. throws them in the trash. And then we <laughs> see him turn around and come back and get them anyway. And I just thought like that's such a perfect detail. Mm-hmm. It's so true of humans that like once we've had a closely held belief, even if we're presented with like inarguable evidence that that belief was wrong it's hard to cha- to actually change our minds and change the thing that feels true and you can see him be both relieved that he now knows what really happened and also troubled by it and having a hard time shaking that he shaking this notion that he should be afraid of these mm. attacks coming from other dimensions and just that moment of like turning him back and taking it out of the trash i thought was like just such a nice thought yeah um if I had to pick one image to to capture what I like about the show, it would be the scene where Hooded Justice is sitting down in front of his mirror at home, putting on the makeup, and his mm. son is watching him put yeah. on the makeup. You get the centering of black characters, you get legacy, you get the idea of performance and justice and power, um, also what repercussions it's going to have in the future. Just Just a beautiful tableau of what the whole series was about and then the the inverse image and i didn't realize until later that sister knight's own um costume is a mirror of hooded justices Mm, where she's obviously black with white paint over her eyes where he's obviously not where so like her blackness is somehow Mm. highlighted by the whiteness over his eyes where the whiteness over his eyes conceals his blackness and that kind of I guess a mirror is the wrong line, but almost a, a counter image at the same time. And I think the costuming yeah. there is really interesting. And Looking Glass mm-hmm. 2, I think that scene of him sitting with the thing over his face and a bunch of images, and he's trying to get the, to the truth by concealing who he is, is also a very nice little mm-hmm. metaphor for what's going on in the show in there. Um, I think that's... I think that's pretty much. I was trying to think think of a particular moment from a God walks into a bar, like, but the whole just the setup of him picking her up with the knowledge that he has successfully picked her up. <laughs> and, There's real swagger. Yeah, There's a lot of swagger. But there. also, he's holding like he he's holding back. Yeah. He's he's also he's also trying to seduce her at the same time in the way that he knows how, even though he knows it's going to succeed. Right. Is could have played a creepy, but I don't think it was creepy, but no, I could be wrong about that. It's so nuanced. I thought I thought it was really great. And then to lead us into um our if there were to yes. be a season two, what would we want? I loved one of my favorite moments was that closing shot. Yes, we I'm glad talk about that. yeah, glad that it ended where it ended like there's also a cliffhanger version of this where you see her foot touch the water and not sink in. Mm. And that's a different imagining of the possible future. I like that none of the questions were answered. Well, of, riddle me this back girl. I kind of think it's inarguable that she got his powers. I, I mean oh. that we don't see it, but I, him making the waffles at the end and saying, oh, this mm-hmm. is more important. That wouldn't have been in there if he wasn't trying. I guess that you could argue he didn't succeed, but, like, he, at the very least, is trying to get her to take his powers. Now, whether or not it succeeds, I guess, is a different question. But I don't really think there's much debate. Uh, in my mind, I should say. There's not much room for debate whether or not she got the actual powers. But mm, that's that's I where I, I come back on it. I want there to be room for that debate because if the if one of the things that the characters are supposed to be learning is that even the superhero can't save you, yeah, then... At some point, someone needs to not get the powers or not mm. try to have them. Like maybe it's telling that she 
eats the egg <laughs> rather right, than right. Rather throws than it in a dustbin or something right, like that. Right. Yeah, 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 yeah. That she's going to try to take them. She hopes that they're there. I do think you're probably right that if he was successful in transferring them, which why wouldn't he be? Because yeah. he's Dr. Manhattan. She got them, but I'm glad that it wasn't just written across the screen. I guess, I guess the, there is some room in whether or not it works or maybe it worked differently than he wants it to, because he does, he knows everything that happens up to the time where he dies, basically, right. mm-hmm. but he doesn't know about things that happened after he dies. So he doesn't know for sure. I don't think that it will work as he wanted it to, or what will happen if it does. I think that's the, maybe the more interesting, yeah. terrifying idea mm-hmm. is like, should Dr. of Manhattan even allowed it to be transferred? Yeah. Yeah, and like, and the who knowsness of that is yeah. is amazing. We we settled on um, Bob and I were talking as the episode ended about like what would you want the season two to be, and we agreed that one of the storylines, I mean, especially given how season how this season ended, would have to be Doctress Manhattan. Like she's going to yeah. get the powers. What does she do with them? Um, I also wanted to see what what happens on Europa now that Adrian Knight <laughs> is gone. <laughs> <laughs> and does Lori Blake actually put Adrian Vite on trial on Earth? But really, I think like the longer that I've sat with it, which has only been a couple of days, the more I think that if they I'm glad, number one, that there's not going to be another season. I think this is beautiful and I want it to live the way that it lives. Um, but if there were going to be a second season, I think I would want it to be another like 30 year jump. I was time. thinking the same thing. Every 30 years, we need a Watchman. And to see, kind of check in on our modern myth-making yeah, around like superheroes. Mm-hmm. Like, what, what issues are going to be interesting in 30 years? Like, one, I was thinking about notable absences, and that's where I got to the idea of feminism. Like, there's not overt mm-hmm. here. Not a lot here about technology, which in our particular moment is interesting. Um, you know, there's not... There are some... Like, Lady True is proficient in all kinds of near impossible currently technologies, but it's not overt. Like it's more of a means to an end rather than a subject of interrogation itself. I feel like some version of this where it's artificial intelligence or some other kind of surveillance states, those things seem interesting. I really just want law and order capes where you get uh, Gene Smart and Tim Blake Nelson. Maybe Angela does get the powers, but then she pulls the Dr. Manhattan walk, Dr. Manhattan walkabout thing that Mm. Dr. Manhattan, where they goes away and they still have to clean up the mess. There's all these superheroes. There's, there's only like 14 people of the 7th Calvary. They got aced in the end. There's, you know, there's white supremacy still a problem. There's all sorts of problems. But what they actually do on an average day and their dynamic there, because he sold Angela out to her and they have a connection that is a tenuous truce mm-hmm. and agreement, which has some nice tension that would, that yeah. would work um, going forward. But that's all. I think if I, if I had to eat the egg of season two or no season two, I'd be tempted to eat the egg but but I think I would put it in the compost. I think I'm okay with <laughs> yeah. now. But if I could put it in the freezer for 30 years yes. and then eat it, I would definitely do that. I do want to come back in 30 years and yeah. see another version of this. And I just before we end, I also have to mention the soundtrack is so fantastic. It's really good. Trent Reznor's original music for it is great, but the incorporation of like oldies and some pop and mm. just all kind of like perfect musical notes that are also really fun. Like and there's so, some surprising w- stuff, but also feels right. Yeah. Not, yeah. Not there's some winking. Yeah. There's some winking in some of it, but there's also like just perfectly great, weird classical stuff. I think especially in the finale, I just loved it throughout it. I kept being like, ah, oh, this music is perfect for this moment. And if you have to notice the soundtrack yep. of a show, you want it to be for that reason. That's right. <laughs> but it's so good. Well, let's end there, Rebecca. Thank you so much for nerding out about uh, Watchmen. Oh, can you give awesome. me 30 seconds? Bob liked it. Do you yes. think he, he was, 
did he need you to handhold through the graphic novel or not? Um, I think he would have enjoyed the show without the right. subtext, but he appreciated my being like, wait, no, here's what's going on. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Okay. That's fair. Mm-hmm. All right, Rebecca, we'll talk to you next time. Thanks. Have a good one.